Welcome back, everybody, to the Self Storage Income Podcast. We have another incredible episode lined up for you today. But before we get into that, huge shout out to all of our amazing sponsors Janice International, Store Local, Live Oak Bank, and Tenant Inc. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes. You guys probably hear us talking about these guys on the podcast all the time. Janice International, tons of amazing people, tons of amazing products, services, their Noki service, their R3 program, all these different aspects to help you build an amazing storage facility or upgrade your storage facility. Uh, just a fantastic group. Store local. It's honestly one of the biggest threats to self-storage is, is market consolidation and everything that goes along with that. So enter Store Local, the largest storage co-op in the world. Just amazing people again, tons of tons of awesome people there and uh, amazing solutions to bring everybody's resources together and uh, utilize those in an effective way to be able to compete and also uh, thrive in a world of competition with some of these larger REITs and the big players in the self-storage industry. Check out Store Local. Amazing, amazing opportunities there. Live Oak Bank. I don't know how many of you guys came to our live event in Coeur d'Alene just this past year, but uh, we had some amazing conversations with Live Oak Bank there, and they were probably one of the most popular uh, <laughs> topics there in our, our breakout sessions. And And people want to know. They, they want to know the financing. You guys want to know what the solutions are, what the deals look like, all these different aspects to financing. Live Oak Bank is that answer specifically for self-storage. They specialize in storage, which is just incredible. There's no learning curve for them to understand the asset. They know it. They've been there before, and they can help you see things that you might not even be seeing yourself. So Live Oak Bank, amazing. Check the link in the show notes. And last but not least, Tenant Inc., Tenant Inc. is an incredible slew of products and services, essentially, for your storage facility to help automate, to help streamline, to help optimize your business and your storage facility. They've got uh, their Hummingbird platform, Nectar platform, uh, their Mariposa platform. Just to scrape the surface here, their, their property software, the big thing about this is the API is open. So you guys can actually, you, you own your data, you can use other third parties and back that into your systems. It's not this closed system that, that only uses proprietary X, Y, and Z. You guys have total control over your data, total control over these various aspects of running your business, uh, running your storage facility. And uh, they just got some amazing products. Again, these are storage owner operators that have created and developed these solutions. And uh, it, it's just an amazing platform. So check it out. Without further ado, guys, here's the episode. Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome, everybody, to the Self-Storage Income Podcast. And today, we have a podcast for you. Now, our guest has already been on this podcast, and he will continue to be. He's my friend, and he's a one of the, I just think, leading experts in a lot of different areas of real estate. I value his advice a lot. I've met um, Paul Moore. A lot of you probably already know Paul Moore, um, everywhere from bigger pockets, but also to the books that he's written on multifamily and now self storage. He wrote the book Storing Up Profits, which is amazing. And I'm so excited to have him on. So, with that, Paul, welcome to the podcast again. Glad to have you on. Yeah, it's great to be here, AJ, man. What an honor. Yeah, this is, you know, it's been a crazy couple years. <laughs> Yeah, it sure has. And you guys have just been rocking and rolling. You guys have been doing awesome stuff. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, my company, Wellings Capital, you know, as you know, AJ, we don't buy and build and retrofit self-storage like you do. We're a step beyond, like we're a step behind you, actually. We're actually, you know, working with investors 
doing due diligence and putting together portfolios of assets for our investors. So yeah, thanks. And you know, it's, I think, you know, when you look at, um, what you guys are doing and, and, you know, how you've done it, it, when you came into, um, self-storage because of all the reasons, you know, we talked about the last podcast and we'll, we'll continue to, uh, talk about it. You, I think recognized, uh, two fundamental things, right. And, and I talk about this sometimes, but really, you know, to win the race, it's all about the horse and the jockey. And you said, okay, the horse, which is the asset, right. The self-storage facilities and, you know, a top, the top horse in the race. And so then you yeah. said, okay, let's go identify the best jockeys and let's get in the mm-hmm. best race. And as long as we can do that, right. It's, you know, we've got really, really good success, which is an incredible formula for someone with that your expertise in real estate in general, and you have that upper knowledge of it to be able to identify those things, particularly for investors. Cause a lot of people that's very overwhelming. It's okay. Mm-hmm. I get it. Right. I hear you on the podcast, talk about all these great things about self-storage, but understanding it, then identifying, you know, as we know, self-storage is very market centric and operator centric. That's a totally different thing. And so, you know, you have multiple operators, multiple markets. So it's diversifying. Um, and that's a really awesome way to get in the game, right? And that's a really good way, especially for investors to put their money behind it, because that way it, it clears up some of those things that they, they may not understand, or they may not know, and they can ride mm-hmm. along with somebody that does. Um, I think right. the model's fantastic. And how many self-storage facilities have you guys invested in now? Well, our last fund, Wellings Income Fund 3, which we opened in August and did our last close on three months later in December, uh, was, um, I think we have 188 assets, which includes one multifamily, one light industrial, uh, several dozen mobile home parks, and about 140 self-storage facilities exceptional that's amazing it's so cool and um you know now that you've you've been so um i i'm talking too much tell us about your background first of all so all our new listeners because our podcast since you were last on is like tripled in size but tell everybody kind of your background and where your expertise comes from because it's really really important yeah so i had an engineering degree mba worked at ford motor company owned my own company sold that in 1997 and when I sold it, I was kind of lost for a while, not sure what to do. And then in 2000, started flipping houses. And we went from flipping houses to doing modular homes, ground up construction, flipping waterfront lots at a resort, did a small subdivision. And all during those years, I was wondering, how do you get involved in commercial real estate? It seems like that's where the wealthiest and most elite players play. And I didn't know how. I heard of syndication. I researched it, but it was such an anomaly back in the early 2000s. Then in 2011, we'd invested in an oil and gas deal in North Dakota during the big Bakken oil boom. And uh, we found that there was a massive shortage of housing to the tune of like literally over 10,000 housing units short. And so we started building multifamily that we operated as, you know, sort of uh, furnished, uh, upscale, um, hotel rooms, you know? And so we did that. We were renting these. So multifamily was renting for about 2000 a month. Uh, hotel rooms were going for about three to 400 a night. So we actually started going in and we said, okay, what about 129 a night? That'll be 4,000 a month, which will be high for multifamily, but really low when you look at it as a hotel room. And so we did that 4,000 a month for a 300 square foot, you know, unit. And we were making money hand over fist. Then we did a Hyatt hotel. My uh, business partner decided to stay in hotels. I decided to stay in multifamily. And when I wrote a book that was humbly titled the perfect investment, I actually (laughs) said, I'm going to, I told my wife, I'm not going to jump around anymore. I'm staying in multifamily, but you know, AJ, Multifamily got so overheated that, you know, the perfect investment's not perfect if you have to overpay by 40% to get it. Yeah. And, you know, inflation and all the stuff that's happening with the housing shortage right now might prove me wrong, but I wasn't willing to take that risk. Yeah. So we decided to find assets that had way more meat on the bone, like self-storage. 
where there was a lot of mom and pop operators, a lot of potential upside, a lot of ability to, you know, make almost certain profit in any economy. And I'm so glad we made the switch. You know, I want to hit on this real quick because I was speaking at an event last night and you, what you mentioned is is really important. So there's two different aspects to this, okay? So you mentioned multifamily, right? Which um, when I was talking to him, I'm like, listen, I, I am a huge believer, particularly in certain markets, like a market that I live in in Boise, Idaho, multifamily is going to so outperform due to housing shortage. We've seen rent increases. If you bought multifamily four years ago, it was incredible, right? And then the question was, okay, AJ, you know, you, I firmly believe in the economics of this. I mean, why don't you do that? That's a great question. And the difference to me is this, in self-storage, I make the investment great. I don't need to wait. I can identify the spread and I can go in and I can make it. In multifamily, I need the market to make it and I can't control that. So I'm not right. going to do it because I may be a firm believer, 100%, right? But at the end of the day, it's not never 100%. I don't know. But with self-storage, there was that meat on the bone like you talked about that is measurable and known and I can get that and I don't need the market to make it. And I'm like, to me, that's a big difference. And you just hit on that. And I think it's really important. Yeah, I love that you said that. And I actually never heard anybody put it just that way. Um, the closest to that is uh, a conversation that David Green and I had on the Bigger Pockets podcast. I was saying that, you know, the, the rising tide has lifted all boats in all these asset classes since 2010 or so. But I was pointing out that Warren Buffett said, someday the tide will go out and then we'll find out who's skinny dipping. Yep. And we, so we were talking about swimming and the tide and David Green had this brilliant analogy. He said, you know, us. think about it. Yeah. He said, the swimmer is the swimmer in that analogy. The guy that might be or might not be skinny dipping is the operator. And the tide is the cap rate and the market. And so even if the tide is going in or out, if you're a strong swimmer, if you're much stronger of a swimmer than the tide, then you're going to be able to do fine. Yes. But if you're a weak swimmer or a non-swimmer, just a skinny dipper, as Buffett says, you might lose everything. Yep. And that's what we're talking about here. And I love the way you said that, AJ, because you're saying that with self-storage, we are making the changes to the net operating income that will overpower a cap rate that expands or decompresses, which means the price of the asset on average is going down. Yeah, I um, so we are in the middle of a raise of one of our funds and I took all my deals that were value adds, right? And I put all my deals and we showed all the numbers and then I uh, grouped them together. And uh, um, they were asking me on my investing strategy, right? And uh, the question was, you know, what cap rates are you comfortable or not? And I said, guess what cap rates I bought all those deals at in the past? And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, neither do I. Um, because uh, when I looked at the deal, my valuation has nothing to do with cap rate compression, meaning that it's the greater fool mentality. Like the deal for me has to be about increasing the revenue and that cash flow, my margin, and what that net operating income will do. Whether cap rates go up, down, demand change, that can't be the driving force behind my investing strategy. If it has, that's equivalent to me than hoping and praying. And I go, those are two very different strategies. It's not that one doesn't work. The market has made more people multimillionaires than you know we could ever imagine. And I mm -hmm. also regard the market as I can't fight against it. So if I mm -hmm. look at a bad market, right, and are decelerating rents in an individual micro market, you know, I'm not fighting against it because, you know, I, I could lose. The point is, though, that I don't expect the market to make me, but I expect right. that the market can kill me. And this differentiator for me has always been very, right. very important, right? Don't expect it to make me, but understand that it can kill me. And if I can That's keep great. that in mind, then I should be able, over the long run, to always be okay. Because in 
you know, the market changes. We're going to have contractions. We're going to have decelerations that are all out of my control. So I have to protect myself from those things that are out of my control and insulate the returns out of the things that are in my control. And that's how I figured a long time ago that I would survive over the long run and through 2008, like we did. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's been a driving force. Now, if you look at it, that that motto or that method has actually probably meant that I forfeited massive returns, right? Because mm-hmm. if I would have went back five years ago and just bought everything, didn't even look, I just bought everything, cap rate compression alone would have made me astronomical amounts of money. Like it's just, yes. it, it's it, like if you even go back and think about what I could have done or what anybody could have done, it's crazy. But that kind of thinking gets people into trouble and I, and I'm okay. Right. I don't want to, you know, what's the saying, you know, um, uh, hogs get slaughtered, but pigs are fat and happy. Right. And I, and I, and I try not to Mm -hmm. let that greed and things overcompensate because it's true. The market made everybody great, but it also can come turn around and kill everybody. And that's just not a risk we're willing to take. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when I hit my fifties, you know, I told my wife, you know, I said, I'm going to stay in multifamily, but after a few years of pounding our head up against the wall and just, I, I don't think I was as smart as I like think like to think I was, but I mean, we, we really did sense that this doesn't make sense for us to really be this vulnerable. I mean, I'm all for hope and prayer, but they're not a good business strategy. hundred you know? percent. You know, it, it, it makes more sense to be able to control. Somebody was on, uh, there's, you know, there's this idea that core commercial real estate is much safer than value add. That's a great idea, but think through it. Value add has such a much higher debt service coverage ratio if you do it right. In other words, let's say you start at a 1.25, the bare minimum, that's a 25% margin of safety between your revenues excuse me, your net income and your loan payments every month for the listeners. Well, if that starts at 25% margin of safety and you can raise it to two or three, that's a hundred percent margin of safety or more, right? At 2.25, you've got 125% margin of safety instead of 25. That's safer than core where you get it at 1.25 and hope to get it up to 1.35, maybe someday you hope. You're and uh, nailing it on the head here. I, I just, I love self-storage for and that. I mean, you know, what better place to get value at than in self-storage too? You know, we think, oh, apartments, they got carpet, fake hardwood flooring, a dog park, lighting, fixtures, cabinets, countertops. Where's the value add with four pieces of sheet metal, a floor and a door? There's a lot of value add. Who would have ever dreamed? Yeah, it's crazy that, and I don't think a lot of people understand it, right? And that, that, when did you, when you're looking at it, I mean, I know you started looking and saying, okay, um, apartments right now are making me uncomfortable at the prices and the competition, right? Um, which is very reminiscent to how I felt when I was starting real estate. I mean, I'm like, I, I'm not sure how to do this. What, what drove you then to self-storage? What, when you were, cause I'm sure that self-storage wasn't the only asset class you were looking at when you're saying maybe right now in the market where it's at, I should start looking at other things. What, what drew you to it? Was it the identification of the value add? Was it the overall market fundamentals or was it kind of a mix of all of it? Yeah, it was a mix of all of it. I mean, um, I was... I got an investor phone call uh, right after we had done a multifamily deal where I was actually getting nervous, like two months into it. I was already like, oh man, there's some stuff that hit us we didn't expect. And we're already running with a small margin of safety here. Um, and so I was kind of depressed. And I got this call from a multifamily investor who had switched to being a self-storage investor. And he said, do you want to hear about self-storage? And I thought, no. And I said, yes. And so because I'm a nice guy. And so I got to hear half an hour of overview of self-storage. And I was intrigued enough to schedule another two and a half hour call with this guy on Saturday. And uh, then I ended up going down to visit uh, one of the operators he had invested with. And I was completely sold. I mean, literally within a month. And so I was able to steer our company in that direction within about two to three months. 
Um, what sold me? I mean, 53 or so thousand self-storage facilities, three quarters of those are independent operators. Half, you know, half of all the, the total is mom and pops with one, you know, one facility. And these mom and pops don't have the desire or the resources or the knowledge to improve income and to maximize value, which is great for them because they've already made a ton of money by cap rate compression. Mm -hmm. It's great for us because like you said, we can go in and make these changes significantly increase income, uh, take our investors, you know, RO, you know, return on equity through the roof. And um, I mean, it's just a great business. I, I don't think of it as a passive business. Like some people think of it as metal boxes that spit out money. But the fact that some people think of it as passive, I think it's great because I, I agree. sure we'll, we'll buy your passive asset and then we'll add locks, boxes, tape, scissors, late fees, insurance, uh, RV and boat parking, U-Haul rentals. We'll build climate control out front. We'll, you know, we might dynamic even add a pricing. propane. Yeah, dynamic pricing, of course. We, we might add uh, a propane filling station or an ATM or a cell tower or a billboard. I mean, these are amazing things that can be done that, you know, again, these are value adds that some of these probably exist in the apartment world, but I think there's actually maybe more here. Yeah, no. And one of the biggest things that attracted me to self-storage um, was, you know, when we started out, uh, we weren't raising funds and we had been successful in our prior life and in insurance sales, but real estate's a different story. It's very capital intense. And so for us, capital was limited in what we needed to do and accomplish. And so when I looked at the value add strategy of a lot of other assets, it was so capital intense that it made me nervous because the yeah. relationship with that capital invest investment to those improvements to get the value add and the correlation of that increase in revenue, I didn't have a good grasp on because I, first of all, hadn't done it before, but just the numbers themselves, it just made me nervous. I have to put all this extra money in for this value add. But what I understood in business operations, I looked at a storage facility and said, I don't have to put, in a lot of cases, any capital expenditures and I can do incredible value add. So the return of the value add strategy in self-storage, when you look at the capital associated to get with it, to me, that was the big selling point because yeah. it was not comparable to most other assets. It was, they were so capital intense to get that return on that capital and to get that improvement in that NOI. And for me, I was, I didn't understand real estate. I understood business really well. And I understood operations, marketing. We understood um, things like pricing and all the things that the mom and pops didn't, didn't have. And I said, all we need to do is treat this like a business and we can increase the NOI, right? I didn't have that with like multifamily. Like if I really wanted to increase the NOI to a significant level, most of the time that involved revamping, changing the overall look of those apartments, different things like that. It just all seemed very capital intense. And so for me, I'm like, hey, getting started, coming into it, the amount of money that I put down, right, maybe limited, I need that money to put down into it. And then I need a return uh, from um, that revenue. I need to increase that because I got to get that money back out to reuse it, right? right. Um, and I didn't, I didn't have a lot of debt options. We didn't, so it was just, for us, it made so much sense, especially for our capital. Yeah. Well, you've done really well with that. And I hadn't really explained that, you know, in the book or on the podcast I've been on. That is a great point. What The way I usually say it is just use an example. And that is, you know, what other asset can you go into? Let's say you buy a small self-storage facility for $2 million. You put in, you know, eight hundred thousand of your own capital. You borrow one point two million, and if you're in a great location, you can sign a contract with U-Haul Corporation a day later, get it up and running, and it's leasing trucks and getting commission for that. And you know, you add potentially six hundred thousand dollars to the value of your facility. You just added seventy-five percent 
on paper at least, return on equity in a few short months by adding U-Haul and leasing U-Haul. Now, you've done this. I haven't because, again, I'm an investor in these things. I'm not an operator. It may be harder than it looks, but there's not a lot of capital outlay there. But where else can you get a 75% return without outlaying any significant capital. You nailed it on the head. And when we got started, you know, I think it's key to remember where we are now is not how we got started. So, you know, we are looking at different products, but when we got started, this is very simple, very simple, like you're saying, right? We need to lower delinquencies, meaning we need to actually um, charge people money, okay? Um, we need to make sure that the economic occupancy and the um, uh, is risen to normal. We were finding storage facilities that economic occupancy. And when I say economic occupancy, I mean, you have your actual occupancy, like how many people are in those units, okay? So let's say it's 90%. And then just to keep things simple, the rate charged, so if you went to them and said, how much is one of those units? They're all $100. Well, what we found was, that even though that's what is being charged, the vast majority of those tenants aren't playing, paying $100. In fact, if you took it on average, they were actually probably averaging only like 50 bucks just to keep things simple. Well, then we just said, well, why don't we just charge people what they should be paying? So we said, we'll collect bills, we'll answer the phone, and we'll charge people what they should be charged. And we were increasing revenue by 50%. And it was like, Amazing. we didn't do anything special. I didn't know anything about dynamic pricing. I didn't know anything about U-Haul. I didn't know anything about billboards, cell towers. I didn't know anything about climate controlled. That was our really fundamental strategy. I whipped up yeah. a website, marketing. And then this was the great thing I loved about self-storage. You can take such a simple thing. And now all of a sudden we're at where we are with 60 plus employees. We have massive software systems that do dynamic pricing. We can do this in big markets. Our yield that we can extract is way higher than I could have ever even imagined, right? And we have, so there was this huge curve to where we could go. But what Paul's saying is you got to understand, keep it simple and you can make a ton of money in self-storage. And I, I, I was mentioning this to a lot of people that are starting out, like, Paul, you buy big facilities and so do I, right? We buy big facilities. But for a normal person, anybody listening to this that's hearing Paul and we're hearing talking about this value-add strategy, a question that I got asked last night was, you know, okay, AJ, you're doing all these things. I'm talking all of this, you know, dynamic pricing, like co-ops and using uh, things with that we're doing um, to capture customers through mobiles and getting rankings, right? And they go, okay, that's great, AJ, right? We don't know anything about that, right? So how can we, because we don't have these opportunities. And I'm like, whoa, 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 maybe I'm confusing here. If I went to get a small facility, 20,000 square feet in a third or fourth tier market, my yield on those facilities would be higher doing nothing that I'm doing than buying these big facilities and having to do. So what I have to do to get the yield on a big one is not the same as getting started with a little one. I could go buy a facility for a million dollars in a small town. And the reason is those are being very mismanaged, right? Yeah. They've never done rate increases. They're not collecting bills. They do no marketing. The economic occupancy is way off. The big ones that me and you, right, we're buying, okay, the people that own that generally are doing at least a, a better job. These are $5 million assets, right? Um, and there's a big cap rate compression, okay? So they're expensive today. Well, you go into that third, fourth tier market, now owner, you need to finance it. So you got to do seller financing and I'm not paying you the equivalent of a four cap and I can lower your expenses because we're going to take a normal expense, just the spread on the buy expenses and the seller financing for any normal person, not doing anything. That's a home run. Yeah, that's huge. I, I can think of three quick examples that kind of back up your point here. Number one, we bought, uh, we invested in a deal in uh, Colorado get this, had 80% occupancy, which isn't terrible, right? For a mom and pop, it's not good. It's not terrible though. 80% uh, delinquency, AJ. Can you imagine a facility with 80% of people not paying or paying late? That was not that hard to fix. Second example, I just talked to a large operator here in uh, Virginia, and they said that they have raised their rates four times. I said, really? Okay, four times this year oh no no four times in 28 years really okay want to sell 
Yep. And the, <laughs> another example is uh, a self-storage facility bought with from a bunch of uh, feuding kids and they were running it into the ground. Um, took it over, paid 2.4 million cash for it, uh, added a website, added a mark, added marketing plan, uh, did online marketing, added U-Haul, added a showroom with locks, boxes, tape, and scissors, mm-hmm. uh, added a professional manager, uh, got rid of the delinquency, lowered the operating costs. We only paid 2.4 million for it. Get this, three months later, it was appraised for um, 4.6 million. So then we financed it at 4.6, 43% LTV was $2 million in debt. So we had you know roughly $500,000 cash left in the deal. And when it sold another year later for right at that same number, 4.6 million, the investors got a huge return on their equity. And I mean, again, I have to ask, where else can you get deals like that? Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's such a great asset. And I talked to a lot of people about this, that it's changing and we're consolidating. So it's, and it's changing rapidly, right? Um, it's one of the big reasons, everybody, that me and Paul are in this asset class. So, you know, I, I can remember, Paul, our conversations, you know, whatever it was, three years ago, and we'd be on the phone talking about this asset class. Great it was. And it was really this idea that this is changing and it's changing fast. And so we want to be on that consolidation end, right? We're like, this is going to end up like other major assets or whatnot. But the runway on self-storage is so much longer. And mm-hmm. these things that we're talking about are very limited in lots of other asset classes. Like you mentioned, there's 53 plus thousand storage facilities across you know, the United States, which the bulk of them were built prior to any of these new operating methods that were around and the owners aren't, they don't have any desire to do it. Their cost basis into it was so low. They're making great cash flow. There's nothing for them to do. So it's a win-win for the person selling it because they get a great price that they would have never gotten you know, used to, mm-hmm. but the tools to the operators can increase it. It's such a unique environment in real estate that this will that the, this is here. Now, just like apartments being the perfect investment, right? Self-storage is the perfect investment right now. But, you know, it may not, it may change, but I think we have a long time just because of the inventory alone within this asset class um, to get in and to manage it. And plus, a lot of that consolidation and, and you know, I'd love to get your 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 take on this. I view most of it is still happening in very big markets, right? So it's it's happening and mm-hmm. it's gone to second tier markets, right? We're now seeing it. So where where I live, Boise, Idaho, which has been the fastest growing city. I don't even know how long, but um, up until two years ago, we had no REITs. So this is a major second tier market that's growing at astronomical amounts. And we had no REITs, not one REIT was here. Now we have every single REIT, right? But it just goes to show that was two years ago. So the vast majority, whatever that is, 90% of all the assets still in this market are not owned by REITs. And uh, this is a major city that's seeing major um, changes. It's not some dinky, you know, third tier market. And so there's still a lot of that in the United States that nobody's even looking at right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. Um, Yeah, the the, the deals that I just mentioned, let me go back through them. Uh, One was in a rural town. I didn't mention this deal, actually, but they have uh, the guy I talked to said, yeah, I think I'm going to sell my facility. Uh, my wife got pregnant. And I said, what's that now? He said, well, my wife's got, pre- my wife's pregnant and she runs the place. So I think we'll sell. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and he said, I said, how often have you raised your rates? He said, uh, zero, none ever in six years and we're full. And I thought, oh, nice. Okay, great. I mean, that's a rural town in Kentucky. Another deal we have invested in is in Ishpeming, Michigan. Who's ever heard of that? It's in the Upper Peninsula, (laughs) in Upper Peninsula, Michigan. I would never dream of doing any multifamily there of virtually any size, but this is actually a quite large self-storage facility. What about Beeville, Texas? Beeville, Texas. The metrics work is my point. As long as you have the supply and demand worked out, you know, using tools like Radius Plus that we love. Uh, And if the supply and demand works, then you can do it in lots of different locations. 
And you don't have to worry about a, a big REIT building a five-story beautiful building down the street from you in Ishpeming, Michigan or Beeville, yep. Texas. And uh, so that's one of the things I love about this asset class as well. So I got to ask you now, Paul, we have talked and me and you love talking. We talk about all the time, which by the way, everybody, you need to go to the uh, Bigger Pockets YouTube and watch some of the uh, videos that Paul did on self-storage. Fantastic walkthroughs. I, I, I love them, Paul. They're very clear. They're concise. It oh, shows the numbers. Um, but we, me and you, we love to talk about this. We we get really into it. We're so passionate about it. And we're excited for the opportunities for others and how they get to participate. So now let's take a step in the other direction. Let's talk about the dangers and the downsides mm -hmm. in self-storage. And, you know, because I, I do believe as much as I love self-storage, I've been trying to be really clear honest and also talk about the other ways because i don't ever want to be just a hype man even though right. i am but you know i i try to make reasons so what are the dangers that you see and what are you looking out for when when, when you're looking at investments and what what are you nervous about yeah so the first uh the most dangerous time in a self-storage uh assets life is when it's being leased up and so if you go in, so we did a deal in Bradenton, Florida, and we invested in this very nice, about 1100 unit facility and on a main road in the first or second fastest uh, planned community in the US, Lakewood Ranch. And lo and behold, we invested in the summer of 20, uh, 2018 and we found out that two big REITs were building right down the street. And so we had to compete during lease up with all these bigger you know, competitors that had better management, better ability to underprice us, um, that had, you know, they could take losses for years. They didn't care. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they cared, but I mean, it was okay with them. And uh, it was tough. And so it was really tough to lease up. And what made it even harder is this was partially leased up the day we went in. And the seller had apparently inflated the records and done a really crafty little thing to rent about uh, 10 or 15% of their units to people who mysteriously vanished the next month. And uh, I've heard so of this really, happening. Yeah. So it was a really tough time. So I think that the, the biggest danger is during lease up, and especially when you're in a market that has potential that a REIT or a large competitor will come in down the road. That's my number one danger. What do you think of that? I could not agree more with you. Those, you know, we even like, do you remember when it was a year and a half ago, you said, hey, we're looking at this deal in Florida. And uh, um, so I, get, and I looked down and I was, and I, I called you up or I, I emailed you and said, hey, just so you know, there's a REIT coming in. It was right, like literally over on, on the corner. And yeah. uh, those are the things me and Paul are looking out for, right? So those yeah. are the things I want to know. And this can be harder than you think to identify everybody. So we yeah. have, let's, I mean, even if you take, um, you know, just right here where I'm sitting, uh, there is a facility being built um, right down the road, big, nice climate controlled, uh, right? It's approved everything and it doesn't even show up on radius plus. In fact, we have major facilities being built around us that don't show up. So when we go into a market, I want lots of feedback, right? So if I'm in a market that I know Paul's in, or I'm in a market that I know either another operator's in or a local SSA charter or somebody, I'm calling around. And you need to do that kind of due diligence. You need to talk to operators in the area, say, hey, what do you see happening? What's going on in this area? What's going on in this market, right? You want to do on the ground work. You want to call up the city. So we want to talk to the city. I want to know, hey, has anything been approved? So our acquisition team will go on the city site and they'll start to look at plots of land that are available for self-storage use, right? So what we're looking for is the qualifications and usage for self-storage to say, all right, this can qualify for self-storage. Who owns it? What's the plans for it, right? Because that is such a big, big issue. And especially in small markets. So if you're in a small market and somebody comes and builds a big, big storage facility and that market's not growing, that can hurt you really bad. Mm -hmm. And two, you can't get out of it. All of a sudden, if that market's not a growing market, 
you, that market, who knows how long it'll take to absorb all that extra inventory. And if that operator didn't do a good job analyzing demand, he can hurt you. So I could mm -hmm. not agree more. First of all, the oversaturation, but in that lease up, that's the danger. That's why when we're doing developments, right, we don't do a ton of them. I do conversions. I mean, we, we've got 650,000 square feet about under development that I got Connor here doing. But um, when we when we look at developments, the number one thing that I, I want to see, I want to see so much demand that it's like we could put us and three other storage facilities yeah, here right. and I'm going to be okay and I'm still going to be able to charge the highest price. There can't be any question. It also, I have to have so much demand that even in a downturn, I said we could think we could still lease up. Then I, I plan a long lease up. I've never leased a facility up in over a year, ever. It's never happened. Every facility yeah. we've ever leased up has been in like eight months or less. Now, well, the only reason is because we just do very, very select markets, but I would never plan on that. I plan on three right. plus years because that's a dangerous time to um, do it. And when people don't lease up, you know, you as you know, you see those downward spirals and rates. So then the market's mm -hmm. trying to absorb it and they're trying to, facilities that are trying to lease up, they start dropping rates like we saw in Dallas in uh, 2019, right before COVID, that influx of supply in Dallas happened. We saw rates across the Dallas market start to drop because of that massive influx of supply. COVID hit and we saw a Dallas market kind of stabilize um, right due to COVID, but it has a big effect even in big growing markets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really true. Um, that's I, I couldn't say it better than that. I mean, that is that's absolutely true. I mean, I could take you. I, I did a, a study. We, we talked about investing heavily in Nashville. I drove all around and I was scared. I'm like, man, there's there's got to be way too many here. We were looking on Radius Plus, and the ratio just didn't look good. But then we went down to Bellevue. Then we went to Belmont. You know, south of town, and there was no self storage. And I guess the you know, citizens and the uh, legislators in that area had kept it out. Man, if we could get a self-storage facility there, it would have been amazing. And that's the kind of things we're looking for. You can't say it's only based on market. I would say it's based on micro market. Yes. Um, AJ, what do you think? You know, you're an expert with Radius Plus and all this. What do you think is a good radius to look at if I'm looking at a retrofit or, you know, um, or, uh, you know, an existing value add facility in a smaller town, what kind of radius would you look for? Wow. Geez, as far as miles? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Okay. So this is a really good question. I mean, as you know, markets are very different across the United States and the fill up and the demand for market. I'm always shocked how we've seen markets with, um, where was it that we were market? They had six feet per capita and we're like this has got to be a home run for a conversion um um waterloo i think that was it i think it's yeah yeah waterloo. and yeah we we thought okay well let's look at the whole city and everything but what we found was there was vacancy in the market at such a low per square foot but then we were in other markets that you looked and they had 26 square feet per capita rates were rising zero vacancy um, and so, you know, markets can be very different, but generally speaking, um, I, I, I think the smaller the market, the much bigger radius you need to go. So if I have 180,000 yeah. people, so we're buying a deal in Denver, we have 180,000 people in a three mile radius. Well, I'm not too concerned about six miles out right now. Yeah, right, right. I'm in a small town though, that, you know, we've, we have facilities in small town and we have a you know, you have your map on your software. We can look at the place. It's crazy how far out we have tenants. Yeah. Like that radius gets gets really big. So I think that, yeah. you know, the smaller the market, I'm I'm going out far. I, I want five yeah. miles, right? Six miles. Um, but once you get into those bigger markets, I think you can get much more micro. Like I, there's some markets where I'm really we're, we're like two three miles. That that's more than enough. Right. Like it, yeah. And what you hit on there is, um, I think, really important. Self-storage is a micro game, not a macro one. Right, right. So I don't know. Is that you kind of find the same thing? 
Barbara. Yeah, I think so too. Cause I, I was trying to think if I was going back into Beeville, Texas or Ishpeming, Michigan and doing the radius analysis, which I personally did not do for that. Somebody on the team did. I wonder what I, would I do a 15 mile radius even? I don't yeah. know because the population in Beeville is 12,000 people and yep. Ishpeming's much, much less than that. Yet those facilities are cranking. Yeah. They're doing great. Yeah. I think too, kind of, you know, it depends. It, I would also throw in if you're on the outskirts of, of town as well, outside of d- just the population density, if you're on the edge of that growth, widening that radius would also be something you would need to do. Um, and then yeah. also the, the utilization as well, where you might, let's say you have a facility that's, you know, outside of the main hub of town there, outside of city limits, but um, it's the perfect place for somebody to offload their RVs before they actually go into town or go mm-hmm. and drive up over the big hill before they go into town. Yeah. I'm just thinking of some demographics here locally and what uh, what factors those play in, in that utilization and how far out some of those tenants, those potential tenants are going to be uh, yeah. for that facility. Because yeah. I mean, in areas like that, you could have somebody driving you know, 20, 30 minutes all the way across town to you know grab their RV before they head up to the hills or Whatever oh, yeah. that looks like. Yeah, you're exactly yeah, right. I mean, square footage isn't even across the board, right? It's not. So square footage isn't all the same. So when we look at, you know, even in a market that looks overbuilt, it may be overbuilt with certain types of units, but it may have no RV. It may have mm-hmm. no climate controlled. Now, all of a sudden, well, where's that vacancy? And this is something that you know, we got really big into, because I, I always say, you know, when we're building a storage facility, units are not units, they're products. So we do product market fit. Here's the market. We got to supply products to the market. What products are in the market? What is the desire for those products? And so when we're mapping out these things, we're looking and saying, all right, this market needs certain products. And it's not all the same. You know, the, the facility Connor was talking about that we're buying uh, it's on a main way that the entire metropolitan area has to get out. So we're building huge amounts of RVs that people can use to go to all the resort towns. And we were going to build, we could get higher utilization by going up and doing climate controlled. And you can always get more square feet or revenue per square foot if you go smaller. And we ended up cutting the entire top third floor off. And it was like, you know what? Maybe it would fill up. And in fact, there's square footage demand for it but that product type in that market has never been there um that is not a traditional utilization of people in that market so like that's not worth the risk because we Mm -hmm. could have one floor and have small units that that market doesn't take and all of a sudden we have 15 percent vacancy because we got one product wrong we built Mm -hmm. too many of one type of unit in a market that didn't want it in a manner in which they didn't want to use it even though there was already demand there. So when you're looking yeah. at an existing facility, you know, it, that's a, you know, I look at probability. So we look at each, each, um, when we're, we're doing our analysis on that value add, we look at the unit and then I'm looking at where that unit is in the marketing market, as far as pricing, what are those spreads, how much we could get that revenue up. And that really comes down to a probability of that line item of revenue. And, you know, I, I mean, when we were first investing, I got that wrong sometime, right? Mm-hmm. I, it was like, why were our numbers off? Why couldn't we hit certain numbers that we thought? What we found out is, well, yeah, there was huge demand, but maybe there wasn't demand for that one type of unit. And that could be a hard right. lesson to learn because then your numbers are all yeah. wrong. Yeah, no kidding. That's exactly right. Um, you know, we looked at, uh, I mean, boat and RV storage, who would have guessed it would have taken off after yeah, COVID I know, right? like it has. Wow. Um you know, boat and RV. I mean, that's one of the easiest things. That's one of the easiest value adds to some of the facilities. Sometimes we'll be talking to a facility owner and they say, oh, by the way, we have four vacant acres out back. We don't know if it's good for anything. Oh, really? Okay. And and one of the cool things about that is, yeah, there's a capital expense to putting up maybe additional fencing or gravel or paving, but you can do it incrementally. You don't have to commit to a whole huge you know, climate control facility, you can just start out small and just keep, you know, adding as you go. And that's one of the things I like about this as well, because, you know, that land is already paid for. And that's the biggest expense, I would think, in boat and RV parking. What yeah, do you think? 100%. It's 
so overlooked. It's so easy. Low capital expenditures, like we were talking about, to get that line uh, revenue of improvement. And right now, that it's a major problem. And you know, cities, the the HOAs, is we have a we have a boom in sales, right? But also, we have a tightening of regulations associated to what you can do with that. RV and those boats, everything. You just can't park it in most most neighborhoods out front. Most neighborhoods in America now won't let you do that because of HOAs and everything. So all these people are buying it and they don't have anywhere to put it. Um, we're doing a development um, right now in Arizona and we are building next to uh, huge Toll Brother uh, neighborhoods that they put in. And uh, these are nicer homes, right? And the Toll Brothers neighborhoods restrict all um, use of RVs, boats, anything they won't allow them. So the mm. number one request the neighborhood, this ginormous neighborhood has the number one, where could I put my boat or RV? Wow. So when we building it, we're doing multi-story, right? It's a 200 plus thousand square foot facility. A hundred thousand wow. square feet of it is indoor RV parking. And really? right next to the facility, they're building two, um, RV um, what are they called? Dealerships. Dealerships. Yeah. So really, yeah, are you kidding? No. Yeah. It worked a, out good. It worked out real good. It's, it's a home, <laughs> home run of run. a product and in six square feet per capita. And we're, they're getting $2 uh square foot a month in that market. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. So, and this comes down to that micro thing we were talking about, right? So, and, and Paul, you know, Paul hit on this and we we're hitting on a lot of things. And this is why I love these conversations with Paul. Cause we get, we get to talk about all these and you're, you're talking about these line revenues and you're hitting these line revenues of these different units, whether it's U-Haul, things like that, but it's supplying a really small place and it's small, uh, supplying a really small local center, right? We're tying it into a dealership and a neighborhood that is ginormous. Well, a hundred thousand square feet sounds like a lot, but that's probably what a, maybe a hundred at, RV units, maybe. I mean, the neighborhood alone mm, probably yeah, has like 50, yeah. 60 people wow. that need RVs. So it's like 60% yeah. is coming from one neighborhood in nice. an area that has six square feet per capita. Wow. And so, you know, it's it's like you can really get value doing really small things that aren't complicated, mm. right? It's not, yeah. it's that product market fit that a lot of people have missed. It's just one of the best things about storage. And you've yeah, got, I mean, I you've got so many agree. facilities. What are, yeah, I want to yeah. know here, what are the markets that you like and what are the markets that you don't? Because you have a, I mean, Paul, you're seeing a lot with 144 yeah. facilities. You're seeing returns on these. You're seeing how these things are playing out. And I'm guessing they're not all located in one state probably. Yeah, we're in 20, that that particular fund has uh, is has assets in 22 states. And so I'm going to give you a kind of a, maybe a surprise answer here. Right. Uh, and that is we, I'm writing a book called Warren Buffett's Rules for Real Estate Investors. I want to read And it. The, uh, <laughs> the goal is to take his principles for stock investing and everything else he's done, really investing in companies over 60 plus years. And I'm taking those principles and I'm applying them to real estate. And that principle that he, one of the principles he uses is what you mentioned earlier is betting on the horse and the jockey. And so we have uh, our company Wellings Capital spends a whole lot of time doing due diligence on operators. And then we let them figure out the state, let them figure out the asset, let them figure out property management. We're just not experts in that. And so, AJ, our goal has been to just let them run with it. I mean, think about it. Uh, Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway owns Dairy Queen, but they don't pick the ice cream flavors. Mm -hmm. And they don't, you know, they own all these insurance companies, but they don't do the underwriting for insurance. They're trusting great management teams to do that for them. And they're just keeping an eye on the team and, of course, the quarterly or monthly results. And so that's what we do as well. We don't have a market we favor. We don't have a part of the country we favor. We actually are even investing in the dreaded state of New York. 
I didn't say California like I thought it would. Like you thought I would. <laughs> yeah, if you said California, I was going to get really nervous. Yeah, it's kind of a, kind of a reflex when you say horrible. Yeah. California horrible just California. follows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, we we're even investing in in New York State because we found an operator that has an incredible uh, value add strategy that works really well when governments are hostile. Yeah. And so he is just crushing it. And so we're investing with them and uh, it's not a state I would have chosen, but it's yeah. going great. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things you, real quick right. I wanted yeah, to yeah, talk about is, is Paul, I love that you're putting together a book talking about the, the same strategies that investors are using in the stock markets and, and applying those to real estate. Um, and, and just that general concept of buying and investing in businesses and in the operations and the managers behind those. Um, because anytime I've ever read any books or blogs or you know heard anybody on a video or anything talk about these differences between uh, these investment vehicles like stocks or real estate, anytime I've ever had anybody trying to make the case for stocks they're they're bringing up the very same points that that make real estate great and, and good and viable and it just I, it is never connected to me because I'm like what what you're saying is exactly what everybody's doing in real estate so how is that any mm -hmm. different you know yeah. so it's just I love Universal that you're doing that it's, principles. It's, right exactly yeah. exactly you know, I um and then yeah, so immediately true. when you said that is immediate I want to read this book because oh, yeah, I dude. remember when I was in college I read a book called The Warren Buffett Way. And uh -huh. that book, it blew my mind. I just got the new edition. I was actually looking to grab it here to, to, to hold it up. But it blew my mind. And I thought, I'm going to do this right with businesses. And I went down that road, right? And um, Warren Buffett's formula was is very predicated on your moat, right? and a compounding mm -hmm. rate of return, which means he needs to know what kind of return that company is gonna get with their capital when they reinvest, right? Well, that was really complicated when you tried to apply it to business because of all these factors. But what I found was that in real estate, that exact same comp, uh, that exact same process was not complicated and it was much simpler. So I said, oh, I'm gonna do this, but I'm just gonna do it in this asset, self-storage. I'm gonna buy predictable, cash flowing businesses that have a moat in a good market. And we are going to improve that business revenue overall. Then we're going to take that return that we get from the business and we're going to go buy more and we're just going to keep repeating it. So our uh, we're going to invest in a known rate of return. One of his other big principles that he uses is float from insurance companies. And he gets a higher compounding rate of return because he doesn't pay taxes. That was also something I could apply to real estate. So what I wanted to do with Warren Buffett and copy his strategy with businesses, which I tried to do, which didn't end up well for me. And so I shifted and pivoted and went into real estate. And it exploded and worked in the exact same, his exact same model in real estate. So I'm very excited for that book uh, because I love everything Warren Buffett. But that that I, I I still today remember pacing in our little 300 square foot apartment above an auto body shop while my wife was uh, serving at New Fong's. Uh, she was a waitress. She made way more money than my sales money of $700 <laughs> a month. Um, and you know, reading that book and just mind being blown. So that's exciting. Yeah. When that's gonna come? When is that gonna come out? You know, we need to find a publisher for it. Um, we were hoping Bigger Pockets would take it on, but they're so much oriented toward, you know, how to and yes. books about multifamily or self storage or flipping. And so as of now, uh, we're looking elsewhere. So um, looking for, you know, hoping to get a draft of the book done in the next quarter so we can, um, you know, present it to some publishers. We have 22 chapters done. We basically just need to get an intro and an outro and a forward and all that. And I think we'll be uh, almost there. Well, Paul, I expect uh, to get that book immediately. And everybody, though, before that book comes out, you have to read Paul Moore's Storing Up Profits. You can go get it on Amazon. But if you go get it on Amazon, you got to leave him a good review. That really helps him out. Um, and it's capitalizing on America's obsession with stuff by investing in self-storage. It's the red one. And um, it's fantastic. It's a really, really good book. Um, thank you for 
seriously participating in this industry, putting out uh, great knowledge because we need it. And, um, yeah. I, you know, I know we've kept you well over an hour now, but um, <laughs> I don't want to take up your you whole want, day. Do you want the red pill or the blue pill? <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. It's the matrix. So you got the yeah, right. blue investors got to sell storage. And really, it's a combo. You got to take both of them. So <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought of that when I pulled these up. So for those of you who are listening and not watching, I'm pulling up AJ's book next to mine. And AJ's bigger, better. But anyway, thank you. <laughs> so everybody go get it. And those that, that'll be the show notes. Uh, we'll have the link to his book. Yep. So you can go pick it up. And um, Paul, I'll have you back on uh, again. We've had you on before. Everybody go check out the last podcast we had uh, with Paul Moore. Thank you so much for your time today and spending so much time with us on the podcast. Um, I appreciate it, my friend. Yeah, AJ, it's been a great honor to be here, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Hey, that sounds great. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Paul. Well.